morning. Uh, let us go behind this guy and go to him in prayer once again. Would you join me? Father, would that be the posture of our hearts that we would seek to decrease and seek all the more for you to increase? Father, too often than not, we get in the way. We get in our own way. We get in your way, God, because we want the glory, Father. But yet we're reminded here today that glory alone belongs to you. To you and to you alone would power and dominion and glory be yours forever and ever and ever and ever. And as we sing those songs and as we're reminded about those things here today, would our hearts be inclined to sing that Every moment, every hour, glory, power, and dominion belongs to you. Father, we're, we're needy, God. We need you, God. Oftentimes, we don't even know how much or recognize how much we need you. But right now, would you bring us to a point of sobriety where we would recognize our deep and earnest need for you to to be involved in our lives, Lord, for you to have ultimate and supreme control over our lives. Father, would you lift our lift our eyes up to you as our only hope? Father, I pray that your spirit that you've given to your children, Father, would use your word in such a way to do what your word can do. It's powerful, Lord. It can cut to the deepest parts of the soul. And so I pray that we all would be that we would go into surgery right now, that we allow your word to penetrate into our souls and expose and to fix and to heal that which is broken. Father, would you bear fruit in our lives, God? We don't need just to sit here for another few moments and then go about our business. Father, we need to be changed. We need to be transformed. And God, only you can do that. So be with us. Guard me from any error. Guard me from myself. Would your word elevate and exalt the Son of God, Jesus Christ? Give us your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, my name is Richard, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you guys would oblige me, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Uh, we're going to continue in a two-part series through the book of um, in Luke chapter 4. Um, and so we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Would you join me? Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for, from here. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. And they will support you with it. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, 
It is said, do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. This is the word of God. You may have your seats. I'm going to present before you, church, once again, simple questions that I think we all can relate to, and that is, where do you look for hope in the midst of great adversity? What do you find yourself running to or running towards when it feels as though the pressures of life's circumstances are crashing in and there's no hope in the distance? How do you respond to God when it feels as though he's forgotten you? When you can't see the traces of his hand in your life, how do you respond to him? I know we're in church this morning, and so it's easy for us that when we hear these questions, we can just easily answer them and say, of course, we run to God. But if we're really honest if we're really going to step back and be sober about how weak and frail we really are, we can know, we, or we could honestly say that sometimes we run to anything and everything but God. Tragedy isn't something that happens to just some people. Tragedy is something that happens to all of us. Live long enough and you'll experience hardship. Live long enough and you'll experience Loss. Live long enough and you will suffer. Tragedy doesn't, um, isn't partial or in any way. It's often not a matter of when tragedy or if tragedy will come. It's a matter of when. Tragedy can come in different shapes, different sizes, and in different forms. For some, it could be the loss of a loved one, the death of a family member. For others, it could be the loss of a job, a dream, a pursuit of yours. For some, it could be the crumbling of a marriage that you hope would succeed, and now you're at a place where there's nothing you can do to fix it. Tragedy comes in many forms. However, it doesn't just come through major crises or um, huge incidents. Oftentimes, tragedy can come in the form of suffering. It can come as that wrestling with the same old tired sin that you thought you had gotten past. It can come in the form of a temptation to cheat on that final exam in school because you know you have to pass this class in order to graduate. Suffering can come in different shapes, sizes, and forms. When we come face to face with our humanity and we see how weak and how frail we are, how prone we are to drift away from God towards other things, how weak we are to even keep a sound mind when the waves of life come crashing upon us, we come face to face with our helplessness. If you've ever felt this way or you can identify with any of these realities, I want you to know that you are indeed in good company. There is a God out there who can understand life's tragedies and difficulties and yet provide us hope to endure. 
This is where we're going to be here in Luke chapter 4 as I as God brings our attention off of circumstances and situations and places them rightly on the only one who can help us, which is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We can trust God. You may be in a place where you feel like, I can't trust anyone or anything. No one can understand the hardship and the suffering and the difficulty of my life. It's too bad to tell anyone and you feel alone. Hear me today that Jesus Christ can understand. He is a help for you and for us all. Last week we looked at the first four chapters in the book of Luke where Jesus is hungry, he's come out of the wilderness and he's been, or he's come out of the Jordan River, he's left that place and he's gone and been led by God into the wilderness. Jesus at this point is hungry, he is desperate, and in those moments of desperation, it's easy for us to question, God, are you really good? God, have you forgotten me? God, do you see exactly where I am. And so last week we were able to see Jesus in him being tempted to satisfy his own needs and distrust his father's ability to provide for him. Jesus chooses to trust a God, his heavenly father, who knows exactly what he needs and can provide everything that he needs. Jesus is held up as the bread of life. We need something outside of what we can see with our hands and touch and that can only be found in God. Today, however, we're going to continue by looking at the next two temptations. And we're going to start in verse 5. It says, so he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. My first point here today, the first point I think the text brings us to is that we can trust God's plan for our lives. But before we can trust God's plan for our lives, we must recognize first that God actually has a plan for our lives. In the account of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 32, it reads as this. God speaks and he says that he will be a great, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom will have no end. God speaks about Jesus' purpose and his um, and, and what his life will be well before Jesus even comes into the world. We can look at this and say, and we can sometimes believe that our lives are merely happenstances. That we are simply here from some cosmic explosion or unintended purposes. God is reminding us here today, even as we look at Jesus, that every life that has been created has been created for God, by God, and God gives it dignity. He gives us dignity. You are not an accident. You were not created by chance. God has purpose in your life. 
those who are Christians, God hasn't just created us, but because of sin, we now are broken, shattered images. God tells us in Genesis that all of man has been created in the image of God. Sin comes in and now we are shattered. As a Christian, our trust is in a God who says, I'm in the business of fixing broken pieces. And so our trust and our faith is that God now takes brokenness and now he gives us new life. And so our purpose now is to actually have the power and the ability to walk in God's intended purpose for us, which is to know God, which is to glorify God, and which is to enjoy him forever. This is what God has provided for us. He who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. God gives us purpose and we must recognize this purpose, but we must not only recognize that he has given us a purpose. In order to trust him, we've got to also resist distractions. Look at the text as it unfolds. It says, so he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And in a moment of time, the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and this authority. In this text, often if we just look at the word tempted, we'll, be, um, we'll only see one side of the story taking place. To be tempted, or the word tempted is often used as a way to, or used um, solely in us understanding or being lured into sin. The Bible tells us that God is not doing the tempting here, but Satan is the one doing the tempting here. But if you unpack that word tempted in the Greek in this context, isn't so much about being lured into sin or enticed, but it's really about being proven true. It really means to be tested. God gives us both sides of the coin to help us understand that when we find ourselves in temptation as Christians, God is not tempting us, but he is indeed testing us. God is not putting us in a position to where we would sin against him, but he's allowing something to come into our lives to truly expose who we truly are. That's God's grace for us, that he would allow us to recognize that you aren't who you really think you are. So let me show you who you truly worship. God is kind in that way that he won't leave us blinded by our own delusions. He's going to expose us, and so he uses and he allows temptation to come the way to say, do you really love me the way you say you love me? Will you really obey me when everything hits the fan? Will you trust me when everything around you shows that it would be better to trust in something else? God is kind to us in this way, and so Satan brings Jesus to a place. Jesus is hungry. 40 days has gone by. He hasn't eaten a thing. And so you can imagine how vulnerable Jesus is. Satan already tried to tempt him to say, turn that stone into a biscuit. I know it looks good. But now it's built up. Satan is saying, okay, I couldn't tempt you to provide relief through feeding your own natural desires. But now let me tempt you with something else. So he takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Look at the humanity of the son, Jesus Christ. 
That's what's being unfolded and unpacked for us. He's allowing us to see, God is allowing us to see his son through the lens of our everyday circumstances. All of us have hunger pains. All of us thirst for things outside of God. But now all of us have ambitions and goals and desires in life that could compete with our ultimate, the ultimate desire God wants for us, which is that we would love him and that we would pursue him. And so he takes them up and shows them, look, Jesus, you can have all of this. Look at the cars. Aren't they pretty? Look at the mansions out there. Don't you want to live in those? Look at the fame and the popularity that will come if you just dot, dot, dot. We may read this and think, hey, there's no way that I would fall for that trap. There's no way that if somebody showed me I could give everything or have everything in a blink of an eye that I would be okay with that. I want to caution us to not think that we are not nearly as susceptible to Satan's lure right now. Here you go, Jesus. Look at everything out there. Here you go. I remember my first year in college, and my parents were like, you're not coming home this summer, you're going to get a job, right? And so I, as any college student does, I go, and I'm like, okay, I need to get a job. Where do I look? And so I go and grab a newspaper, right? And for those that are 25 and under, you may not know what a newspaper is, but it's a piece of paper that has information on it. You're like, what? Newspaper? Y'all didn't have Google back then? No, we had newspapers, And so in the newspaper, I go and I start searching what are the job opportunities out there to which I come back to a place where I find a job paying $9 an hour. And this job says I'm going to pay for um, training and you're going to be able to make this. Give us a call and we can set you up. So I call and the name of this company was called Cutco. (laughs) Yeah, y'all know about Cutco. (laughs) And so I go to this training and I'm like, man, we're going to get bread. We're going to. You know, I'm going to be able to buy some shoes. I'm going to have Jordans, you know, all that stuff. And I go to this meeting, so we go through the training, and they do this whole, you know, this whole presentation where they take out scissors, and they're like, look how sharp these scissors are. And they start cutting a penny up and stuff. And you're like, dag, like, scissors can cut up a penny? So they go through this whole presentation. And so once you get through it, you know, they've already kind of laid the red carpet out for you. They're like, yeah, this guy's been working for the company for three months, and now he drives a Ferrari and all these, like, false promises, right? so you get there and you're like, okay, well, you know, training's over. I need a check. And they're like, well, actually, um, the money that you made during this training is going to go to the purchase of these knives for you so that you can actually demonstrate and make some money. So you're like, man, I spent the last three days in this training and I ain't got no money, but I got a pair of knives that I don't need. And you go through it and then you get there and you realize that, you know, we're in Texas. And so they're like, hey, we're going to send you guys out go knock on doors, and you need to set up these presentations, and I'm like, I'm in a, uh, a shirt and a tie and uncomfortable shoes, and you're dropping me off in the middle of this city to knock on random people's doors to sell them some knives. Well, needless to say, I didn't work at that job too much longer, but that was the day that I learned about pyramid schemes. <laughs> pyramid schemes. They sell you a bill of goods, or they sell you this empty promise only so that they can ultimately get gain. Here Jesus is facing a pyramid scheme. 
He's facing a get-rich-quick scheme. Here, Jesus, here is everything that you would probably ever desire. Here's all the kingdoms in the world. You can have it if. The question is, what is the if that Satan offers to him? What is it going to cost Jesus to give up everything for a moment of instant relief? Satan's tactics come in the form of an opportunity. They come in the shape of an opportunity that Jesus finding himself in a desperate place, a place of neediness, a place of hopelessness, a place of, God, I don't know what you're doing and I don't know where you're taking me. And yet Satan comes in with a opportunity. I think it's important for us to realize that when we find ourselves in desperate situations, when we find ourselves in a position where we want relief or escape, let us not be deceived that there's not an enemy out there looking to prey on our vulnerability. Let us not mistake every opportunity that comes our way for the will of God for our lives. Satan can place opportunities before us for the purpose of destroying us, not for the purpose of protecting us. Satan gives this gift-wrapped opportunity, this gift-wrapped way of escape. And he says, this is not just a any old opportunity, but this is one that appeals to the senses. This is one that is pretty for the eye that is fond of beauty. This is one that is um, um, that appeals to the heart for the desire for ambition. This is one that dazzles one's mind with glory and what he can obtain. This is one that appeals to the lust within for possessions. This is a lottery ticket. The promise of spend one dollar and make millions. Temptation can come in the form of an opportunity. But What is God really after? I mean, what is Satan really after here? You can just look at what's going on here and just think that, man, Satan just made Jesus a job offer. It's not a really big deal. It's just an opportunity. No, let's look a little deeper. Satan right here is going after Jesus's affections. Satan is going after Jesus's heart. We live in a country where um, from a young age we're indoctrinated with the idea that the dream of all life is to ultimately put our place, put ourselves in a position where we don't need anybody else. It's all about us attaining things, owning things, becoming things so that at the end of the day, nobody can tell us what to do. And the subtlety of. This American dream is that even for us as Christians, it can creep in and it can start to penetrate and poison our hearts in such a way to where we convince ourselves it's okay to follow Jesus as long as he comes with this. It's okay to follow Jesus as long as he provides me with that house I want or that car I like to drive or my family size that I've been wanting for so much. Jesus. It is okay to love the American dream and Jesus at the same time. How subtle and how crafty the serpent of old is. Satan is able to package 
his gift perfectly because he studied Jesus. He studied humanity. He knows what we love. He knows what he needs to place before us in order to lure us to take and bite the bait. A perfect fisherman knows that if the bait ain't right, then the fish won't bite. If the bait ain't right, the fish won't bite. You and I are no different than people from the beginning of time until now. Let us not think that we ourselves aren't vulnerable to these same temptations. Jesus is needy, he's hungry, and Satan places before him an opportunity. But let's continue on. Not only does Satan place before him an opportunity, but Satan, the opportunity that presents itself is one to say, look at all these things, aren't they worthy of worship? The reason why I said it was a, it was about the matter of the heart is because Satan knows that if he can convince you to believe that you need all of these things, or even that these things are promised to you, that you deserve these things, then ultimately he can get you to worship these things. Now, worship is a term that often is used um, as it relates to us lifting our hands and giving praise and honor to something, using our lips to affirm. And But worship in the Bible is a little bit different. It's not it's not that it's not that, but it's more than that. Worship in the Bible has a direct correlation with our service. What you worship will be what you serve. What you serve will be what you protect. And what you protect will be what you fear the most of losing. That is what worship truly is. What do you love the most? What do you desire the most? What do you fear the most of losing? Oftentimes, if you trace all of those things to kind of help you grab or understand your motivations behind things, you'll often see how you've started to worship something other than God. It may be your intellect, how smart you are, the degrees you have. It may be your achievements, the letters that come before your name, your job, your career. It may be the letters or the colors of that organization you're in in school. Oftentimes, good things can become ultimate things in our life. Good things, things that aren't bad, can become God things in our life. And so he says, no, Satan's not after just making an opportunity. Satan, Satan is after your affections. How can I get you to serve other things than God? God will use or he will allow opportunities to pass by our desk so that we can measure and examine the health of our hearts. God will use opportunities to come past our desk so that we can measure and assess the true health of our hearts. What will you chase after to get relief? What will you run towards to get relief? Jesus here, knowing that what lies before him is a cross. What awaits him is his death. What awaits him is the rejection of the people God sent him to save. And he has a choice. The choice is either I can have the crown without suffering. I can have the glory without any real cost, at least 
in my eyes. Or I can follow God and I can ultimately get the crown of glory, but it's going to require a cross. I can have, I can be faithful to God, but it may come with thorns. This is the question for all of us when we're facing temptation is, will you choose to obey God even through difficulty or will you look for the easy way out? Will you look for comfort and ease and security or will you trust God that regardless of what your circumstances are looking at, looking like, what you can rely on is what God has said and the promise for what's to come. This is where we find ourselves. I want us to I want to caution us as a church. y'all. Be careful of opportunities promising. Be careful of opportunities promising better circumstances because it might just be a setup. It might just be Satan setting you up to put you in a place where you're isolated, where you're alone, where you find yourself struggling and wrestling with sins and there's no help to be found in the end. Be careful that opportunities promising better circumstances because they might just be a setup. Um, as a practical note, um, you know, as pastors, we often get a chance to talk to a lot of our members. And, you know, one of the things that we've kind of noticed is that sometimes um, this is no shade to any of y'all. Like sometimes it seems as though people come to us for counsel after they've made decisions. So it's like, hey, y'all, I have this major thing going on in my life and this is what I'm going to do. And I just wanted to hear from you now. Well, you've already made a decision. Now I have to try to convince you out of something you have already decided in your heart to do. God's grace and the grace that he gives us as a church is that one, and this is not to big us up by any way, but the God does say that pastors are a gift to his church. And not only does he say pastors are a gift, but members of your church are gifts from God for your life, so that when you come to moments where you have to make hard decisions, you can call on brothers and sisters of Christ. You can call on your pastors and say, I need help discerning God's will in this because I don't want to make a mistake. And now people can speak into your life, and those that know you well enough can now come in and say, hey, I know you're saying this, but knowing you, have you thought about this? And what you'll find is that when you bring in the counsel of many, one, I want to I make this clear that all counsel isn't good counsel. And if you only go to your friends that are going to tell you what you want to hear, you're wasting your time. You want to go to people who are going to bring you to God's word, who are going to remind you of God's truth, and who are going to challenge you and push back on what you think you're hearing from God. Because if it's from God, then God is sovereign enough to use even that conversation to, to, to put you in line with his good and perfect plan for your life. Trust God in those ways and allow the resources God has provided you to benefit you in the long run. We're here for you. And we want to love you and we want to be able to shepherd you. And we all come to places where we're like, God, right now it's hard to hear your voice. God, right now I'm unsure what to do. And God's gift to us is that he's given us his spirit, he's given us his word, and he's given us his people to care for us and to help steer us. Here, the promise of great gain comes with a hefty price tag. Jesus, I'll give you all this, 
if only you'll serve me. If only you'll worship me. How many of y'all know that with any offer, there's always fine print at the bottom? And you go to the, you can have a contract placed before you could be signing up for an apartment and you can be reading all the big print and be like, oh, this sounds like a good idea until you get to the bottom of the page and you're like, wait, 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 what are you saying? I got to pay y'all a thousand dollars for, I don't even know what. There's always fine print in every offer. And so Satan, being as crafty as he thinks he is, he lets Jesus know up front, this is what I'm asking for you. This is what it's going to cost you to abort your mission. Just serve me. I'm a better dad to you than God your father is. Serve me. And so Jesus, he responds with, and this will be my third point. He remembers God's promises. He recalls on the goodness of God and his word. And so he responds with, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is able to recognize the temptation by God's grace. He's able to discern what is actually taking place. He sees beyond the interaction. And yet he responds here with the promise of God by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. I'm going to read this Real quick, we mentioned it earlier, but it's a promise of God to his people. And it says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities, that you did not build houses full of every good thing, that you did not fill them with cisterns, that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord. Who brought you out of the place of slavery. Fear the Lord your God and worship him and take oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. How do we trust in God's plan for our lives? By reminding us of God's past faithfulness to his people. Sometimes we got to stop listening to all the voices out there, and we've got to backtrack into time and look at how did God respond and interact with his people from back on under. The same God that, pro- that promises right here to provide everything that they need. It's a hope of the future. The same God that provides that hope for Israel is the same God who for Jesus is saying, based off of his obedience, That he will be given a name above every name. That every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Yes, the path towards eternity, the path towards his calling, the fulfillment of his purpose. Yes, it will come with thorns, but at the end of the day, Jesus will be seated at the right hand of the Father. God doesn't just give promises to his people of old. He doesn't just give promises to Jesus, but he gives promises to us as his children. Look with me in Revelations 21, 4 through 8. This is the promise. This is what we look towards as his children. And it'll be on your screen. Revelation 21, 4 through 8, he says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. Don't don't forget this. I want to make sure we include this. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. I will be their God and they will be my children. How do we trust God in the midst of great adversity? How do we trust God's plan for our lives? It's by remembering his promise for us as we remember what God is pointing us towards, what he's provided for us, what we will inherit after our lives have ceased to exist on this earth. He promises us, look, my paths lead to everlasting joy. The way in which I'm leading you may not be traveled by many, but the path in which I am leading you leads to everlasting joy. Do you believe that? Do you Remind yourself of that. This is something that we should plaster on our walls. This is something that we should have on the dashboard of our cars because life will hit you in an unexpected way. And where will you draw strength from? Your will is not enough to keep you. Your own strength is not enough to help you endure. You will need to run to God and God's provision for us is his word. God's provision for his people as a way of escape is his holy scriptures. Jesus doesn't respond to Satan with this, like, a, like a, using God's word as like a water gun. Just say, shoo, Satan, here's his word. No, Satan knows God's word. Jesus' use of scripture is so that he himself can be anchored and deeply rooted in God's truth. So that in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his temptation, now he knows God has promised this. Okay, God is not a liar. He will never tell a lie. And so I can lean on a sturdy foundation, the word of God. We have to get to a place in our spiritual walk, in our relationship with Jesus, where what becomes a knee-jerk reaction is that as sickness come, we can recall God's word. That when I lose my job and I'm tempted to take another job that would take me away from all of God's family, there's no healthy church in sight, there's, but there's money in sight, that we can use God's word now to say, this is what God says and this is how I want to live. God will provide my needs. God gives us his word to anchor us. God gives us his word as a way of escape. God gives us his word so that we as family can act as the one reverberating symbol that everywhere we go, we are reminded of the goodness of God and his goodness is shown to us in his word. But not only can we trust God's plan for our lives, we can trust God to keep us safe. A God who cannot protect his investment is not a God who should be worshipped. A God who cannot keep his children safe is not a God who should be trusted. Now, I want to break down safety real quick because we're not talking about physical safety. We're talking about a God who gives us his spirit and promises that one day that same spirit he's given to you, when your life ceases to exist and you no longer have breath, that God says, I'm, re- I'm, with- I'm returning back to me what I've invested in you. I'm taking my spirit back and 
there, you please be assured that there is nothing that can separate, it, separate you from the love of God because I've given you my Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit will keep us, it will seal us, and it will help us to endure until the end. Not only can we trust God's plan for our life, we can trust God to keep us. Let's keep moving. I'm running out of time. He says, so he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. For it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord. Do not test the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to truly test the Lord? Most of us, as we hear this this particular temptation, I think that we lose out on the severity of what's actually taking place here. There's a snowball effect taking place, and now Satan, with one last-ditch effort, has said, I ain't dealing with your hunger pains. I'm not dealing with your ambition. No, I'm going after your life. Jesus, cast yourself down. God did not lead him to the point to where he would have to test God as if he still wasn't good. Satan did that. Here, Jesus stands 500-some feet above sea level on the top of the temple. And Satan says, look out and look down. Cast yourself down. In church, we can often make light of the reality that suicidal thoughts are a real thing. We think that, no, people struggling with any type of mental illness or any type of suffering in that way, that those with suicidal thoughts have no outlet to share what's really going on because there's a fear of being judged. There's a fear of being isolated or feeling alone. Let's not confuse the reality that right here, Satan is whispering in Jesus' ears and telling him, stand on that temple and throw yourself down. As if uh, seeking to convince him that life would be much better off if you would just off yourself. There's a, there's a level in a darkness to suffering that will cause us to even question why we're even still here on earth. There's a darkness of the soul that can bring us to places where we start to believe it would be better off not being here anymore. And I want to encourage and I want to challenge and I want to speak exactly to that because I'm going to let you know that is not from God. God has created you with purpose. He has given you a, a, a purpose, and God is the only one that should determine when your life begins and when your life ends. If you find yourself in a position where you're hearing voices that would tell you, take your own life, recognize that that is Satan saying, cast yourself down. God is showing us that he can even empathize with those that will be tormented and suffer in those ways. He understands that. You think that on that temple, Jesus didn't think after being weary, after being tired of resisting, of feeling as though temptation after temptation after temptation is rolling over and over. You think that he didn't at one moment have thoughts 
that felt like penetrating daggers to say, maybe this is a better way. How do we know that? We can see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, trembling with the cup, knowing that God's wrath is coming, and Jesus saying, is there a better way? God, I, I, I desperately know this is what you have for me, but is, this, is there a better way? Let this cup pass from me. God knows our suffering. He, he identifies with our pain. He identifies with our humanity that would say, God, help my unbelief. I know what you say. I know what is right, but God, help my unbelief. I'm having a hard time trusting you. Satan's craftiness is that the way that he would seek to get Jesus to convince him to take his own life would be to use God's word. This, oh, you love scriptures, Jesus. Okay. This is, what Jesus, this is what your God says. He will give you angels, orders concerning you. He will protect you. He'll support you on and on. And if we take Satan's word to be true, we'll miss out on his deception. Satan quotes Psalm 91, and in that psalm, Satan leaves out a key component to that text. He says, in the, in the actual account, it says, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. To remove that small component turns this text into a pretext. And a pretext simply means that it now gives justification to convince you or to cause you to believe that what you're doing is acceptable. That's a scary reality. That lies can be parading around as God's gospel truth. Lies can be parading around as God's gospel truth. And so Satan tries to deceive him, to which Jesus' only response is, do not test the Lord your God. Do not test the Lord your God. How can we trust God to keep us safe? By remembering that God is always with us. He is always with us. He points back to Deuteronomy 6.16. And he recalls an account where Israel is in Manasseh. And Israel has been brought out of the wilderness. And they feel as, and they've gotten thirsty. And in the process of them getting thirsty, they start grumbling and complaining to Moses. Moses, how has God brought us out here? Why has God brought us out here? We're thirsty, Moses. Grumble, 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 murmur, murmur, murmur. To which Moses says, why are you complaining to me? This is an issue between you and God. At the end of the text, it says that Moses called that place Massa, specifically because the Israelites grumbled and they questioned, is God really among us? Is God really among us. The temptation here is for Jesus to go from the one being tempted to now the one tempting. There's an exchange of roles here. Satan is tempting. Jesus, become more like me and now tempt God. Prove that God really loves you. Valentine's Day just, just passed and um, um, we don't celebrate Valentine's Day in our house. Every day is Valentine's Day. But the reality is Valentine's Day is really just a time where, you know, heightened expectations are presented. 
you know, you have this day where couples and people with significant others, they come together and they just put so much pressure on themselves to perform. And so the moment that somebody doesn't do what's acceptable, it's almost as if, forget the 20 years we've been together, right now, you don't love me, right? Right now, we're seeing a Valentine's Day moment. God, I, I, I'm in a hard place. I don't know what to do. Why am I here? Why have you left me here? Are you still with me? To which we would probably respond with, God, you must not love me. You must have forgotten about me. Jesus responds by recognizing the reality that God never leaves his own. God is always with his children. When he feels distant, never never assume that his eye is no longer on you. He knows where you are. He knows what you need. And so um, I think that we have to, you know, every Sunday that we come together, we have to remind ourselves that God really loves us. Every day we have to remind ourselves that God really loves us. And the way that we can know his love is that this isn't about just knowing things about God. This is about experiencing God. Spend some, I want to encourage us, church, to spend some time today, spend some time throughout the week, and just start thinking back of all the ways, all your personal encounters, all of your experiences, everything that makes up your story about God and how he's worked in your life. Start thinking about those things and see if you, see if you can contain yourself not to respond with praise and worship. See if you can think about the goodness of God and all that he's done. And not only that, invite other people around you because sometimes we can become so blurry in our vision. Sometimes we can be so selective in our memory that we forget what God has done in our lives. Sometimes we need one and oftentimes we need one another to say, man, I'm having a hard time believing that God is good. Can you remind me of the faithfulness of God that you've seen in my life? And then we can tell each other, man, no, Take your head up from off the circumstances. This is what God has done. This is what he's doing. And the same God that did that back then can do that right now. And pray for each other. God loves us. And so a couple things before we wrap up. The way that we test God, one of the ways that we can test God is through prayerlessness. When things come up, we make moment, instant decisions without even seeking or communing with our, with our Father. We put ourselves in positions where, God, I'm going to do this, and then you're going to pray that everything goes well. God, I'm going to put you in a, I'm going to put myself in a position where I force your hand so that I get to do what I want to do without all the consequences. God is, becomes a parachute for us rather than a loving father who we have relationship with. That's one way that we tempt ourselves. In a practical way, think about the diabetic who just stops taking their medication. Think about the person who doesn't exercise, but they want God to keep them healthy. As if God has given us our bodies, and I'm speaking to myself, as if God has given us our own bodies to dictate and do with them as we so please. Let us not test God, let us not 
force his hand. Let us not put him in a position where he has to bend to our will and our way. And all that we really want from him is for him to protect us from the consequences. This is how we test God. This end close, the scripture um, closes with this. And after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. Here is where we get excited. Jesus has gone through testing for 40 days. Jesus had been through the greatest of affliction, of suffering, of trial. And every time Jesus passes the test, we, I said in the beginning, how can we trust God with our life? The way that we trust God with our life is by looking to his son. God has given us the perfect example. You and I, we can look at Jesus, the one who would not feed in to anything that this world had to offer. He he, uh, ends with raising himself up in all victory. God uses all of this for our benefit. Luke writes to a friend as an apologetic, I want you to believe and have conviction the things that you've heard about Jesus. And he writes to us so that our faith and trust in Jesus would be firm and grounded in who Jesus is. And here, through these three three temptations, we're able to see Jesus Christ highly exalted, the holy, perfect Son of God. For those that don't know Jesus, where this may be the first time that you've heard about him, you may have your own impression about who he is, or you may hear about him and you feel unmoved and un impressed. One thing you can't deny is that suffering and tragedy in your life will force you to run to something. It'll force you to look to something. And what you can't honestly say is that what you've been chasing has brought you any of the fulfillment and true satisfaction that you're longing for. I want to invite you into a better way. As Christians, we're no better than anybody else who doesn't know Jesus. Our only hope is that we trust in a God who's provided the life that we could never live ourselves. Our only hope is that God gives us a son who we can look to for our hope because the son of man failed every time. Adam failed. God's people Israel failed. But Jesus passes the test. Who better to place trust in than somebody who can not only identify with your suffering, who can not only relate to your trouble and your sadness and your frailty and your weakness, but somebody who can also help you overcome it. Jesus provides us with the hope that regardless of what happens in this life, we can say, as Paul says, For these momentary light afflictions that I am going through are nothing to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. God prepares for us and he invites all of us. He invites us into his family. And he provides everything that we need in order for him to be our God and for us to be his own. I want to invite you today that don't wait, don't put off for today Or put off for tomorrow what you can do right now. Jesus gives an open invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary. All you who are tired of running to everything else. Come to me and trust me as your Lord. Trust me with your life. I can satisfy you. My plan is perfect for you. And I will keep you to the end.
That is what Jesus offers us today. I'm going to take some time to pray. And I'm going to ask all the members of the church to uh, just be praying for the person next to you for a few moments. Pray for those in the room who don't know Jesus and are like, man, they may not have the courage to even tell somebody that they want to know more. But we just pray that God would yeah, move right now in such a way to where those desiring to trust in Jesus would feel compelled, would feel restless, would feel as though I can't wait another moment. And then I'll close this in prayer. Let's take a few moments. Father, we're grateful for those that have trusted in Jesus. We rejoice in the fact that we know our Savior, that he's made us his own, that we can rejoice in the fact that salvation has come. And not not only has it come in some for everybody else, but, Father, we can individually say salvation has come for me. That I've tasted of his grace. I've tasted of his mercy. I know him to be true. I pray that you would. Use your word to anchor those who find themselves in a place of absolute helplessness, Father. You remind them that it's in these moments that you are still the same good and gracious God and that you actually have them exactly where you want them to be, dependent upon you and not themselves. Father, will we all be encouraged and spurred on to want to dig deeper and to study deeper and to know your word in and out, Father? Not only to resist the schemes of the enemy, Lord, but also, Father, for us, for our hope to be a constant reminder, to be fresh upon us, Lord, that you've prepared for us an inheritance, Lord. And, Father, would you help us to look for the day when there will be no more tears, when there will be no more pain, when there will be no more death. Father, where we will be with our God and we will behold him face to face. Father, it's encouraging to know that there's representation for us in heaven. That your son, Jesus Christ, has not put off flesh, but yet sits at the right hand and will come back in a way that we can recognize him. He still has the pierces in his hand. We'll see him for who he is, Lord. Father, you've provided a way for humanity to be redeemed and restored. Would all who are here today, would our trust be in you and you alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.